I'd like to thank my sponsors, Voyager, Choice by Kingdom Trust, and Electronium for making this episode possible. Stay tuned for more info on them later. What's up, everybody? This is Scott Melker, and I'm the host of the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where twice a week we talk to your favorite personalities in Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, politics, and anyone with a good story to tell. This show is powered by Blockworks Group, a media company with over 20 podcasts in their network. You can check them out at blockworksgroup.io. If you like the podcast, you follow me on Twitter, you absolutely need to check out my website, enjoy my newsletter where I share all my trades, charts, analysis, market thoughts, and lessons on improving your trading and investing. You can check that out at thewolfofdollstreets.io. Now, today's guest is the CEO of Diginex, a multifaceted digital asset company bringing blockchain technology to the mainstream. I'm also very much honored to announce that Diginex is the newest sponsor of this show, so I have to give a huge thank you to them for choosing to partner with us. Uh, Starting in traditional finance, Richard Byworth accumulated 20 years of experience in trading equities and derivatives. Now he's leveraging his past traditional market experience and fascination with cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology to dominate a new disruptive front. Uh, I can't wait to hear his perspective because he has his hands kind of in everything in this industry, which you'll hear. So Richard, it's it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for taking the time to, to talk with me. Scott, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I think I touched on it uh, very briefly, but can you give us a bit, I guess, of a deeper dig into your background and how you got here? Sure. Yeah. Look, it was uh, it was a long and winding road. As you mentioned, I was in finance for twenty years. Started my career in trading in London. Um, I moved out to Tokyo to run a distribution team for Nomura. Started building that team out, and then we acquired Lehman Brothers at the height of the crisis. So that was a really interesting moment, um, trying to integrate, you know, the biggest, most aggressive American culture into the most domestic Japanese uh, aggressive culture in in Japan. And uh, yeah, it was a very interesting time. Uh, it was actually about that time that I first heard about Bitcoin. Um, so I was, uh, I was running the desk distribution desk. So I just integrated my team with the Lehman team, uh, for derivatives distribution. And there was a young grad on my team who, um, who was always approached by the, uh, by their, their head of it. And they were always chatting and I was just trying to just get this guy off my desk so that we could carry on and do some business. <laughs> and I was like, Can you just get off my desk and stop talking about this stupid internet currency. And this is like in 2009. Uh, oh, those really, guys. really early. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, both of those guys are retired now. So um, I would imagine. Obviously, so. yeah. Obviously, I should have should have paid attention to what they were talking about. Oh, two thousand nine, man. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, two thousand nine end of. I moved to Hong Kong. I've been here ever since. So um, there, I was again running distribution for Nomura. At that point, I started just accumulating businesses. So running derivatives, CBs, Delta One, futures and options, and just broadening out what the team was offering, a very multi-product offering, um, and seeing how people really traded these products and interacted with them all, um, which really gave me a sort of a good base for what we built here at Diginex. It was beginning of 2017 that I read the book Sapiens. Um, I'd been a bit disillusioned with what had happened with Brexit. I was really just shocked with what was going on in the world, as I think many people were. Obviously, the Trump had been elected in the US. That so was kind of shocking for everyone, uh, even those who were supporting him. 
Yeah, I was um, going to say, even so, if you liked him, you were probably surprised. So. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, it, it, it was a point where everybody was kind of questioning what was going on. This book was, it was very uh, impactful in, in terms of sort of explaining societal belief systems and particularly focused on money. Um, being in finance, I'd always had a, a big issue with where all this money was coming from, like where the printing was going to end up and how this wasn't just destroying our money. I'd been investing in gold uh, for some time, but then reading that book, I kind of started to really understand the, the, the quality of what had been designed in Bitcoin um, and obviously the blockchain technology that underpinned it. Um, and then I made my first investment in Bitcoin in 2017 wow. uh, and invested in Diginex. Uh, as as a as a startup cryptocurrency mining company, um, and then when I walked out of banking, uh, the founder of Diginex asked me to uh, come and help him design what he saw as as the future of investment banking in the digital asset space. So, can you talk about what Diginex is exactly? Because I know it's multifaceted sort of as you touched on it's interesting because i didn't know that you started as a mining company you know because yeah. it's so much more now so can you talk about uh, you know how that evolved and what it is now sure so so the founder was a banker like me um we'd worked together at nomura back in in that period when we we acquired lehman um, and he'd been sort of running around in this space, building out the cryptocurrency mining business. And he'd just been stunned by what was happening in the industry. I mean, people were running around Hong Kong, literally with suitcases full of cash, facilitating Korean retail trades on an OTC basis. And he said, look, this is, this is just never going to evolve into some, uh, some industry where institutions can participate if this is the behavior. So really we started Diginex with this sort of mindset of we've got to replicate what we see in traditional finance. We have to build an infrastructure that allows institutions to have that comfort where they're not putting their reputation at risk, interacting with an organization that may not, you know, actually do proper KYC and AML, so they could interact with terrorist financing. They could take on tainted Bitcoin into their organization. So really that was the premise. We actually sold the mining business into the hype of, of, of early 2018. Well played. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was good. And then, uh, yeah, and then we really set about building what is the, the, the full infrastructure today. At the center of it all is our exchange, Equos. And Equos launched uh, just, just a few weeks ago. Um, and today it's a spot exchange, but it's really just, it's about building the infrastructure and architecture that will lead to, um, much more efficient, much, much more efficient, um, capital movement, portfolio margining, uh, collateralization of positions around specifically derivatives. Um, and so that's really the, the sort of the longer term, uh, goal of, of what we're doing. If you look at this space and you compare it to tr traditional finance, you know, FX is, you know, a market where derivatives are like a hundred times the spot market. Yeah. Whereas today, you know, crypto derivatives are what, like two to three times the spot market. And it's purely like perpetual swaps and of you know, course, I mean, it's, it's, futures. Yeah, so. they're retail. I mean, they're, they're totally retail products. It's not, yeah. 
Exactly. So it's really hard. Well, we just don't have the infrastructure yet to, to start to see that. Now, with things like BACT coming along, we are starting to see that, and that's going to propagate that massive expansion. But, you know, we've got 20 to 30x expansion from here in that market just to get anywhere close to where we see traditional markets and derivatives. So that's obviously a big focus of the core, the core engine of Diginex. Around it, we've built a lot of the, the ecosystem that we see as being really essential um, to the overall adoption of the asset class. So if we're thinking about, about that, that institutional adoption, one of the key things is, and I know true Bitcoiners will, will not love this, this, uh, this viewpoint, but institutions need a viable third-party custodian. Of course. They need one that they can trust. <laughs> An exactly. institution can't put a few hundred million dollars on a ledger in a safe and hope for the best. I mean, it's just not reality. <laughs> exactly. exactly right. So we've built a custodian out of our London office called DigiVault. So DigiVault uh, was built by um, our CEO of DigiVault and his team. Rob is um, an ex-security specialist from the UK government. Um, so he effectively ran uh, a lot of their solutions builds. Um, but he has designed a very solid, both hot and cold custodian. We operate out of global vaults of Malcromit, one of the largest vault providers globally. Um, and it means that we can set up a vault anywhere in the world. But actually interesting for a lot of our clients, and I think in this time, again, when people are thinking about things like trade wars and, and uh, asset confiscation and this sort of stuff, so many of our clients, American clients included, say, I don't want my assets stored in the U.S. So having a custodian that isn't yeah, in the U.S., yeah, is, is actually a really big differentiator. And, Why do they uh, say that? I mean, what's the fear of being, I mean, is it a, is it a fear of regulation? Is it a fear of instability? I mean, or, you know, or that, you know, it'll be banned or off ramps, non ramps will be banned. I mean, what is the fear there that, that the United States will negatively impact their holdings? Uh, I think it's obviously the, the, the U S is quite aggressive in tax policy for starters. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think the other thing is around confiscation potential, right? You've already seen in the last few years, central banks refusing to send gold to each other, right? So what happens if you have a vault that's controlled on US territory? It's about, the implications I mean, I, I, are yeah, concerning, it's, it's, right? It is concerning and, you know, land of the free, home of the brave. It's not sort of uh, mm -hmm. what you think of, but it, it, yeah. makes, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I often argue that the United States is effectively the worst country for crypto traders, investors to, 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 to live. I mean, it's brutal. Yeah, I mean, look, we, we, we don't touch the U.S. We do not touch the U.S. I mean, we're going to list on NASDAQ, but <laughs> we, we, get into don't, that. <laughs> we, we don't touch U.S. clients um, because it becomes extremely complicated. Now, we're going to go down that road eventually through, you know, licensing, but it takes time. You know, you've looked at what Fidelity have done with Fidelity Digital Assets and that, and that custody offering. They've got to go across 51 states and, and organize different currency regulation and licenses. 
Yeah, it's amazing how difficult it is because of that state to state sort of policy mm-hmm. we've seen, you know, like Binance.us, a, a retail exchange. But, you know, it's it's like uh, mm-hmm. it's like July 4th or New Year's Eve every time they can add a new state. And imagine you're basically <laughs> one country, but you're negotiating 50 mm-hmm. different contracts and, and it's, it's crazy. So I kind of interrupted you. So we talked about DigiVault. We talked about Equus, the exchange. So and yeah, I know sure. you also have an asset manager and an investment bank, correct? Yeah, so we have an asset manager called Bletchley Park Asset Management. So it's uh, today Bletchley Park uh, is is regulated out of Hong Kong under the advisory licenses and asset management licenses of the regulator here. Um, and we, we operate a fund of fund. So a fund of fund, as I'm sure you're aware, Scott, is is we invest in other funds. Yeah. So we, we, we came at this industry again, looking at it going, look, there's a lot of smart people in this industry. But... They don't really understand how to structure a fund or set one up in a, in a viable, investable way. You know, obviously everyone's doing self-custody. It comes back to that original point about institutions for third-party client money, making sure that they have a viable third-party custodian, these sorts of rules and regulations. And so what we've done is we've gone across the industry, found some of the smartest managers and helped them get to the point of being investable in many cases and built a portfolio across across the industry that's focused on what we refer to as sort of very alpha-centric strategies. So things from long-short to arbitrage to algorithmic trading, momentum strategies. So you actually help them sort of, of define what they are and how to then approach securing investment and marketing basically the fund to, to for people to understand that. No, generally they've come up with their own strategies. Right, so they've they okay. found so a way them. to make money in the industry. So we may, we either, you know, we look at them and go, great strategy, but we can't invest in you. <laughs> right, I gotcha. um, and this Investable is how by we, you. we okay. can invest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So these are the things you need to do. Then we can invest in you. And by the way, this is going to actually help you move from being a five to $10 million fund with your friends and family money into actually a fund that people can actually allocate capital to. Right. And so, really expanding the industry and, and helping again, that institutional adoption because you know, many, many of these players don't want to be sitting there trying to trade and work out how to trade Bitcoin. They just want a nice alpha generating strategy in a very differentiated asset class in a non-correlated asset class, which is undoubtedly is. Right. So they want to take some, idiosyncratic risk, but they don't want the responsibility for any of it. So they just want some exposure through someone yeah. to trust and a vehicle that they can understand, but they don't want to, they don't want to buy it. They don't want to sell it. They don't want to hold it basically. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Cause it's complicated for all it the reasons so we just talked about. It's still the biggest, I mean, I still, to me, that's forget even institutionally, it's still the biggest barrier to mainstream adoption in my opinion is just the complexity of it. You yeah. said like no, you, hear, you hear people try to explain Bitcoin. It takes them like 10 minutes and they, they, you lose yeah. someone in like the first 30 seconds. And then you have to get into how you actually hold it and secure it, which is a whole other, yeah. like be your own bank, you know? So you touched on earlier. Um, and I think this is just incredible and important that you guys are being listed on the NASDAQ. So could you talk yeah. about that a bit? Yeah, no, sure. I mean, look, it comes back to one of the biggest issues we see with the industry. And I talked about reputation for people. Um, this is a big factor for all institutions. And so when you think about, and I, I've had this comment so many times in the last few weeks, I'm sure you've had the same. So many people asking about Bitcoin, what should I invest in? You know, how, what, what, uh, how do I uh, allocate capital? And the 
big feedback that I've had for so long has been, I don't want to send my money to some exchange I've never heard of. I don't know who the founders are. There's no transparency. You know, I want to invest a million dollars into this asset class, but I'm definitely not sending a million dollars into somewhere in China. I have no idea what's going on. Right. So I think, you know, obviously Quadriga, I'm not sure how many people even know about Quadriga that aren't in this industry. Uh, but, you know, these are, that is exactly the example of what people hear about. And so, um, yeah, having that NASDAQ listing was something that we were always very focused on. We said that we just need that differentiation in terms of credibility and transparency that allows people to trust what we're doing here at Diginex. And so, yeah, we started the process in May last year. It's been quite a, quite a process. I can't um, imagine. We obviously, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we had the we had to get SEC approval, and that was that was complicated. And I think obviously, once the SEC understood that we weren't operating any of these business lines in the US, I think that the comfort level increased quite dramatically. Um, and so, yeah, we got to the point of SEC approval uh, earlier this year. Um, and so, yeah, looking at that listing very shortly. It's exciting because. It gives people another way to be exposed to the industry without having to, again, buy, sell and custody Bitcoin. They can just, you know, yeah. invest in a, in a company that's kind of, that's their core, you know, competency, but uh, do it in a way that they're familiar with. I mean, isn't that really the value? So as much as it's valuable for you as a company, I think it's huge for the entire industry just to have one, <laughs> you know, one yeah, person well, there. No, I think it's a, it's, a, it's the picks and shovels trade, right? That, that we always talk about investing in a new asset class. Um, you know, is, is everything around the peripheral that's going to make money whether Bitcoin goes up or down. And that's the point is, is that ecosystem trade. Um, yeah, no, I think it's great for the industry. Um, it, it brings us up to that, that level where people are like, oh, hang on a minute. You're, you're seeing a company in this space listed on NASDAQ. I think it's secretive to everyone in the industry. That's for sure. Yeah, so it's interesting. You touched on the fact that Equus is launching with or has launched with a spot spot trading, obviously, but that the mm -hmm. end goal, I'm assuming, is um, creative options products and derivatives and stuff. You come from a derivative trading background. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of misconceptions in this industry about what derivatives really are and how important they are and what their purpose is yeah. um, for making markets more efficient. Um, because like you touched yeah. on earlier, it's all perpetual swaps. It's, we're talking about mostly 20 year old something kids who are just, mm. you know, gambling money around with hundred X leverage. So can you talk about actually why it's so important and the purpose of options and derivatives? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, let, let's say you're a, a long-term Bitcoin holder, which I assume you probably are. At so, point, yeah. yeah. So you're, you're probably looking at Bitcoin here. What are we? 11,500. Uh, thereabouts and you're saying well look i definitely buy it at seven thousand right well you can actually go and sell puts today or you would be able to sell puts if options were out right. there which effectively means that you go and buy that and you can do that every month and get paid every month to have that limit order effectively in the market and this is the sort of portfolio management that you don't want to be sitting there in front of a screen every day trying to wait for 7,000 to come about. You just want to have a limit order in there and get paid to have that limit order there, which you do by selling someone downside protection in this market. 
And this is what we see in traditional finance. Like, you know, you, you have a core position and you do derivative overlay and underlay around it. And this optimizes your position. It puts you in a position where you really know where you're going to be. You can manage risk. If suddenly something happens, you can, you can make sure that you can knock out some futures very quickly, get decent liquidity, as opposed to actually trying to do a spot Bitcoin trade, which can obviously slow you down. And it means that you can get into the, you, you can have all your Bitcoin in cold storage where they're extremely safe, but you can manage all around them to manage your risk. Um, so another thing would be like, look, I would sell Bitcoin here. I would sell Bitcoin at 30,000 all day long just to make a print. So you can just be selling calls every month at 30,000 strike and just keep rolling it and get paid to do so because you've got that core position. And if, if it actually gets up there, then you sell a small position, a small part of your position. So actually for retail as well as institutions, there's, there's a really nice, portfolio management element to being able to use excuse me derivatives efficiently and then you think well okay i'm if, if you sell a put for example then obviously normally you would have to post something against it and imagine now that you're sitting in a ecosystem where digivault holds all your bitcoin you're selling a put on equos we're looking at your digivault account and going okay he's got the collateral to deliver so we don't actually have to take any margin off you. You've got this efficient portfolio margining within the ecosystem. I think that's the development that we're just not there yet. And um, yeah, we're going to see uh, in the next six to 12 months uh, really grow, obviously with our offering, but I'm sure we'll see it with others as well. The idea for me longer term is that you have this private bank situation and you touched on it before. We actually have an investment bank and I'll, I'll, I'll go into that. But effectively, what you have is you have this way of managing your assets in a single platform. And then with all that infrastructure, we've obviously already designed to support what we see as being the future of digital securities and the broader disruption of investment banking, leveraging blockchain tech. So, you know, Ethereum-based uh, securities, for example, so ERC-20, 1400, 14.04, all those standards and delivering securities within that. So that's obviously further down the road in terms of regulatory capacity. But we already run an advisory boutique investment bank today around securitization. So we do things like securitization of hard assets, LPs for private equity firms, et cetera, and then distribute them out to our client base. But we can also have, as well as distributing them into in paper, we also have the flexibility to deliver those in digital form. Right. So you deliver it in digital, then the question for that investor is, okay, where's my marketplace? Where's my secondary price? Right? And then down the road, as Equos advances in different regulatory jurisdictions, then we can support that. Actually, Digivault already fully supports all those ERC standards. Uh, we're in the process of getting regulated uh, by the FCA, the UK regulator, for custody of digital securities. So it's advancing fast. Obviously, the opportunity set today around virtual currencies, as I said, is that model towards private banking and managing your own investments. But you imagine when you've got you know, every security that you've ever traded sitting in that account as well, you can use that all and manage your portfolio just so much more effectively. And obviously, you know, anytime you want to go and sell Google to your, to your friend, uh, you can do that peer-to-peer -peer as well because you're managing it out of your own wallet. 
It's interesting. So, I mean, derivatives are really a way of stabilizing price by setting, you know, kind of a future standard of what the expectation is. It brings volume in and it allows people to hedge. But like you, you touched on the most important thing that just kind of like when you talk about options or trading for dummies, you know, people ha don't realize that these things are used to trade around a core position. I talk about it all the time. Like I was just, I just shorted had just shorted Bitcoin from 12,050 down to around 11,300, but I'm net long massively and always will yeah. be. Right. And, but mm -hmm. people freak out every time I mention that I shorted as if I'm like the devil and <laughs> yeah. I'm betting against this asset, but they don't realize that it's actually, I, I want my short to go wrong. Right. I want, yeah, I, no, exactly. go ahead, blast exactly. off to 15,000. Let's go, you know? Yeah, there's no denying this is a fun asset class to trade, right? So trade around your core position. You obviously want to be long, long term. So you have your core position. You trade around it with like a few percent of the portfolio. Why not? Yeah, I think there's people that are just shorting because they can. And it's, <laughs> and it, you know, that's just not, that's just really not the purpose of, of these products, right? So interesting, talking about the products, you sort of touched on it, but I know you're planning to roll all these things out. Is the decision on how to roll them out based on regulatory approval? Is it based on demand? What, what makes you decide, okay, you know, tomorrow we're going to start, you know, six month futures or, or whatever, you know, the next thing is. Yeah, look, obviously when you start to move into the derivative space, it, it comes with regulatory concerns. Obviously spot Bitcoin is, is less uh, less concerning to regulators at this point in time. I think most regulators are getting to the point of, of being flexible with it. Derivatives in many jurisdictions comes under the Securities and Futures Ordinance. Obviously, the US is one example of that, where all exchanges that offer those products have to be coming under the CFTC. Right. Um, I mean, the US is, as I said, it's complicated. You just got so many regulators looking at different even, things. Even outside of crypto, it's complicated. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. So I think, you know, there are ways around and it's just making sure that we tread extremely carefully with all of these products. But we obviously want to help people manage their positions, safeguard their positions and, and do so in an efficient manner that's accretive overall to both both retail and institutions it's not just i mean like a lot of the positioning of of what we've built is for institutional standards but it's also improving the landscape for retail as well and making a much fairer more transparent product i mean i'm sure you've seen the way that we see these leveraged products get liquidated uh, March, March 12th. I mean, March 12th, basically, you know, Bitcoin could have been sent to zero on certain exchanges because of inefficient liquidation yeah. engines. You know, I think that the, I mean, my opinion was the first half of that drop was real and the second half was completely a function of inefficient exchanges. Completely, completely. And also, you know, seeing you know, we've got many of these exchanges that actually trade on their own exchanges <laughs> with, with the information of all the positioning of where the triggers not, are for not, the Not very hard to sweep someone's stops if you uh, know exactly where exactly. they are. Right, right. but I mean, so again, that's a at a certain point, there's no demand. At a certain point, there's no demand and you're firing liquidations into an empty order book. Yeah, yeah. So look, we have, we have solutions around that. Um, our liquidation actually goes to market. Uh, for 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 the um, for the liquidation itself, so we offer that out to quite a quite a few market makers. 
And then we obviously have our own insurance fund in the same way that a lot of these are structured as well. Um, so yeah, look, I mean, our view is that if we were marketing and making on our own exchange, that is a significant conflict of interest when it I comes think. to these <laughs> sorts of situations. So yeah, actually but people we have, know about it and they still trade there. I know. I know. But like, so but, look, that, but that's retail. Yeah. But I, I think everyone will start to understand that they really are not having their best interests looked after. And so once you have an alternative option, then, then you can actually start to migrate your business away. I mean, those are casinos, right? And the casino <laughs> yeah. always wins. It's you sit down at a blackjack table and you know that every hand, you know, the odds are, are against yeah. you because it, it's fixed. And so, and you touched on this before. So what, what do you need to do? What do you need to offer to make it an institutional grade product? Because obviously like, I mean, you know, we know that we're talking about BitMEX, like someone mm -hmm. can't, an institution can't go safely put a couple hundred million dollars on BitMEX and, and start trading perpetual swaps. So what kind of infrastructure do you have to compel mm -hmm. them to, to actually, you know, uh, put their money on Equus and, and, and feel safe? Well, look, I think, I think one of the biggest problems is, is actually account infrastructure. So I'm sure you've heard of a guy called Nick Leeson, uh, who nearly broke a bank in Singapore, uh, trading and booking his own futures. Like institutions need basic infrastructure that, that they have because of regulatory frameworks. So things like segregation of duty, you don't want your operations guy to be able to trade your book or your trader to be able to move balances around, right? You've got to make sure that you've got that segregation within a bank or a proper, you know, large size institutional hedge fund you need to have a compliance function. You need to have an audit function. You need to be able to have all of those access points that they can check with different levels of, you know, access. So we've built that whole infrastructure. If you onboard as an institution today, you're onboarding through that process. So you define each of the people you're onboarding, what their duty is within the organization. And then you can, you know, obviously on that basis, define what they do and don't get access to. So that's the starting point. Then obviously there's KYC and AML. Like you go to BlackRock today and go, hey, do you want to trade on this exchange? And they're like, absolutely no way unless I have yeah, full understanding of their KYC and AML policy and how their KYC and AML policy was since they started because there's probably still Bitcoin sitting here from 2009 or, or whenever it was that they were incepted. So where did that Bitcoin come from? And again, that's obviously a big, a big focus for us is making sure, A, that we've got a very clean KYC AML process, but B, any Bitcoin coming onto the platform is checked clean. to make sure yeah. that it's not directly come from a hack or terrorist financing or whatever it might be that's going to cause an institution like that to say, I can't even go near this. It's funny though, because people think that Bitcoin is anonymous and you can't tell where it came from, but it's quite the opposite, <laughs> right? So, I mean, what is, yeah. your vet, what is your vetting process like to actually determine whether, you know, the Bitcoin is, you know, gray, brown, whatever, you know, the colors they, they assign yeah, to them yeah. or, or that, it's, that it's actually come from a reputable source or miner? Yeah, so we do chain analysis. Uh, so chain analysis on any Bitcoin uh, coming into the ecosystem. Um, and that really just allows you to sort of grade very quickly whether or not this is high risk. Uh, if, I mean, obviously Bitcoin is broken into, you know, millions of Satoshi, right? So you've got Bitcoin that could have come from all different places as they've been reassembled. 
So uh, generally, a Bitcoin is given some sort of risk assessment weighting. Now, if that's showing up a, a, a big red, it generally means it's come directly or almost directly through a few wallets from a criminal transaction um, that has been identified. Is obviously what the FBI use um, when they're monitoring the dark web. It's the same platform. Um, so chain analysis is obviously the tool that we use to make sure that you've got that cleanliness. Don't be a part of the 7.1 million Bitcoiners in the United States who have Bitcoin and a retirement account, but don't have Bitcoin in their retirement account. Seriously, you can hold Bitcoin in your retirement account and not just GBTC. How can you do this? Through a self-directed choice IRA by Kingdom Trust. The first 1,000 users to open a choice IRA will receive $62.50 in free Bitcoin. Visit retirewithchoice.com slash wolf. That's R-E-T-I-R-E-W-I-T-H-C-H-O-I-C-E dot C-O-M slash W-O-L-F. Podcast listeners receive extra points to move up the waitlist and get their choice IRA first. Do it right now. It's time to take control of your financial future and free yourself from the restrictions of classic retirement accounts. Are you sick of paying ridiculous fees to trade crypto? It's time you try Voyager. It's hands down my favorite place to buy and trade crypto, and it's 100% commission-free. Voyager gives you easy access to more than 30 top crypto assets, and you can instantly transfer cash from your bank account so you never miss a trading opportunity. Even better, you can now automatically earn interest on your crypto holdings. Currently, they're offering 5% interest on Bitcoin and 6% on USDC. Yes, you heard that correctly, 6%. And there are no limits or lockups, which means your funds always stay liquid. Find out why so many people are making the switch to Voyager. Visit investvoyager.com or search for Voyager on the iTunes or Google Play store and get $25 in free Bitcoin when you use the promo code SCOTT25. That's investvoyager.com, promo code SCOTT25 for $25 in free Bitcoin and start trading today. Hey guys, I want to take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Electronium, and their amazing new platform, anytask.com, a place where freelancers can finally be paid for their work without needing a bank. Freelancers match directly with potential clients and receive ETN as payment. Even better, ETN can be spent in over 2,000 physical and online locations worldwide. A lot of companies talk the talk of mainstream adoption, but Electronium is truly walking the walk. They're banking the unbanked worldwide and offering opportunity to those who lack access to the resources that many of us take for granted. In the next few months, they're also adding more in-app purchases, including local food and supplies, paid TV, gaming, gift cards, and much more. If you'd like to learn more, head on over to electronium.com. That's E-L-E-C-T-R-O-N-E-U-M.com. So um, how does OTC transactions play into this? Because I mean, obviously retail traders here that hear of this mythical world of people buying and selling thousands and ten thousands yeah. and hundreds of thousands of bitcoin at a time i've been down that rabbit hole trying to help people and it's it's impossible i mean it's a literal you know yeah. it's impossible to get a transaction done so you know when you're talking about institutions and you're talking about trading at this level you're talking about moving huge amounts right so yeah. what does that look like absolutely i mean i think Look, when we're talking about institutions of that scale, um, we're very, very early in the sort of testing the water phase. And they're going to, you know, work with exchanges that they've onboarded to or that their broking firm can use, right? So the obvious answer always is CME or potentially backed. Right. What we want to see, obviously, is, is go to, going down that road and bringing it into an exchange where they understand the proposition 
of what we're offering in that entire ecosystem approach from the portfolio margining side. So I think, um, you know, you talk about OTC, we've obviously seen a lot of these. In fact, we even as recently as two weeks ago, we were offered uh, a seller of 850,000 Bitcoin. Like, wow, ca- Satoshi's, Satoshi's come back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so like there's a lot of scams and, and people mucking around in this space. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a waste of time. Generally, the OTC market is, you know, it's a million, two million, three million here and there. Um, yeah, I but think it's, it's better structured now too than years ago when yeah. everyone was sort of trying to like broker those deals and, and make huge money. Because now I think there are reliable desks and brokers that you yeah. can go through and know that there's actually a human being on the other side who's not <laughs> trying to scam you. You just touched on backed in the CME. It's interesting. Yeah, a lot of people, and I've never heard anyone's like in your position's theory on it, but a lot of people say that. Um, the CME coming online was really sort of the death of Bitcoin for a couple of years because the all-time high in Bitcoin price effectively, almost to the day, I believe, coincided with CME, with, you know, the CME launch. Maybe it was CME in December. Yeah, launching and, you know, big money being able to short, basically. Yeah, look, I mean, but that's efficient markets, right? And, you know, you get to a point where you know, everybody slowly starting to understand it. And I think that, you know, 2017 was way too early. Everyone had looked at what happened in the ICO space and was like, that had brought down the credibility of Bitcoin, right? Because if you're looking at Bitcoin as an institutional manager and you're going, actually, I'm going to present this to my investment committee today and these are my arguments and this is my structure and I'm going to make a good presentation and then suddenly you've got this whole ICO nonsense going on where like every scammer on the planet is like, I'm going to do an ICO. Raising and hundreds of millions of dollars for ideas yeah. that probably required like 300 grand. <laughs> and you're like, okay, credibly, uh, how am I going to sell this? And you're not going to go for it, right? So it just stops that whole adoption process. And then obviously anyone that doesn't understand is looking at going, this whole thing is a scam. And just, you know, the future opens it up for that institutional selling. I actually have similar concerns today around DeFi. I mean, we just- I was just going to ask DeFi. you about that. And like it-, it Yeah. Like, in the last few that. days, I mean, even in the past week or two, I mean, I saw like four charts today of things that literally like dropped to zero in five minutes. Yeah. Just I mean, like, on pump you know, and dump exit scams. We finally got to the point where Paul Tudor Jones is talking about, this is the best inflation hedge there is buying Bitcoin. You've got micro strategy, this, you know, big US corporate game. We're going to allocate a significant proportion of our treasury balances to Bitcoin to hedge against inflation and, and, and what we see as a weakening uh, dollar longer dollar. term. And then you've got suddenly all the clowns come back and they're like trying to, you know, create all these new Ponzi schemes and scams around, you know, I don't know, yield farming sushi and yams and potatoes. And you're looking at it like, what the hell is going on? Like you say, going to zero in like four days is just, this is just losing credibility again. Right. But what's so crazy about it to me, listen, I I think that the conceptually DeFi is brilliant. I think it could be life changing and 1% of those projects that are real are going to, you know, make Mm -hmm. a significant impact. But like, in the ICO craze, at least we saw like a process 
And then <laughs> like a year of yeah. know, whether their GitHub was dead or whatever of development. Now it's like on, on crack, it's happening in like four days. Yeah. Like you, yeah. you see it conceived, funded, listed because you don't need an exchange anymore. You just go to Uniswap and then like mm -hmm. it hits like the real, real exchanges two weeks later. I mean, it's incredibly fast. I don't understand how it's even happening, to be quite honest with you, some of these things. And some of them are brilliant. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. But like the one yeah. that went to zero no, today, look, like I, hot I, dog, hot dog. I mean. <laughs> look, I'm with you. I think, I, I think, unfortunately, you know, decentralized finance has such an interesting future. And unfortunately, it's now getting tainted with this brush uh, in that same way. I'm just hopeful that it doesn't spread through to the entire industry and to Bitcoin and people looking at that and saying, Oh, I told you Bitcoin was all a big scam. Um, so, you know, we're, we're at a point of inflection. I feel now, um, with Bitcoin where people are really waking up to the fact that central banks are really losing the reins of, of what they're doing with the money supply. And I think, uh, you know, Bitcoin obviously is an extremely solid sound money and hedge against that. And so uh, I think this is our time. How did you come to believe that? I actually read, I believe that you originally, you were on the other side. Bitcoin's kind of a scam. It's a joke and came around. Is that true? I, well, yeah, I, we, I mean, all was, we all did. We all did. Yeah. But, yeah. It, it, it was like many people. I think, you know, in, in 2009, I, I mentioned that those, those guys so chatting early. on my desk. Yeah. About yeah. Bitcoin. I was like, guys, just stop with the nonsense. We, you know, we will trade some options. And, um, and, uh, yeah, then as I say to early 2017, red sapiens, I'd been questioning a lot of what was going on in the world. Started looking at it, it was, uh, you know, I didn't read the white paper till, you know, sometime later and, and really understand what we were looking at here. And the more I understood it, the more I was like, Oh my God, this is just genius. It is. And, um, yeah, like lots of people are like, oh, you know, why, why did he choose to be anonymous? Why, why did he deliver it in this way? I'm just like, I'm questioning who he was to have delivered something this perfect. Like, it's incredible. It really, it really makes me wonder. And so when you look at it, um, you know, just the whole, you know, let's keep it quiet at this point. Let's, you know, build it so that it gets traction. You know, the whole approach, everything that was done was almost step-by-step step perfect. Um, so yeah, look, it's, it, it did definitely take me quite some time and it was only actually when the whole of crypto started crashing in sort of late 2018 that I was like, right, okay, here's my, here's my opportunity and started just windmilling into the market. By, by, by the fear, you could tell your yeah. experience, experienced trader and investor that you actually were getting interested when everyone else was panicking and, and, and selling and yeah. exiting. So obviously- yeah, I struggled you, to buy a lot of it in sort of 2017 because everyone was just yeah. like hype, hype, hype. Yeah, well, you you, know? and then, was, when, you're, when your Uber driver is telling you about Ripple, you know, it might be time <laughs> yeah. to, not time to buy, but time to be seeking the exit. So you obviously yeah. have been traveling in this circle for a very, very long time. You became much more aware. You believe in it. You decided to build mm. products around it. But what do you think the general sentiment is, the people that you've, been trading with and working with. Do you think that the institutional, a lot of them are, are really starting to come around? Do you still think that you're like a small part of the, the few percent that actually get it and believe in it? 
Yeah, look, it, it's a really interesting question because obviously, like you, I'm in this all day, every oh, day. Yeah. 18 hours that I'm awake, I'm living, breathing this industry. And so you come out of it occasionally for air and you're like talking to people and they're like, what, what are you talking about? And you're like, what? How, what? how are you not up to speed with this? And you talk to people and they're like, uh, yeah, no, I don't quite understand this Bitcoin thing. And, and suddenly you realize just how early we are, even though it feels like everybody's talking about it because we're in our own echo chamber, right? So, you know, a lot of, a lot of what I've done over the last two years is, is speak to people about it, speak to people that run institutional finance firms um, and get them to the point of comfort so that they can start to put their toe in the water with, uh, with their own investment and then start to grow and represent the institution on that side as well. And I think more and more this is coming. Um, I, yeah, I, I had someone two weeks ago say, look, thank God you guys have built what you built because I've been wanting to invest in this space for ages and I just don't trust anyone to send my money to them. So finally, you know, you've got a, a company that is regulated that is going to be listed on NASDAQ and it's just a game changer. Have you seen more awareness in the past five or six months since there's been, I mean, you have to be living under a rock to not understand mm -hmm. how insane the money printing and quantitative easing and central bank policy are, as you touched on. So, I mean, are you see, are you hearing it more or people in your ear? Like maybe this is a hedge, maybe this is real. Yeah, I did. Um, I did this thing where I, I, I'd taken myself off Facebook about three years ago. Strong. <laughs> I deactivated my account so that obviously I could just keep the network if I ever needed to get in touch with anyone. And so I thought, you know, just with what, what's been happening, certainly post COVID, um, I was like, look, I, I really actually now feel a responsibility to tell my friends about this properly. So I did this uh, sort of mini campaign of my own personal Facebook where I was just like, started talking about inflation, started talking about money printing, referencing sort of what happened in the eighties, um, runaway interest rates, all these sorts of things. And then explain the dynamic of what's happening today and posted some chart. I mean, like once you see the charts of the money printing that we've done over the last three, four months, it's just mind blowing. And you, so you can't even fit it. You need, you need like a new scale yeah, on the chart just to it's, fit the, it's, it's crazy. As we used to say in finance, it's, it's off the chart because yeah. it is off the chart. It's literally, literally yeah. off the chart. So, um, yeah, I, I had a lot of people after that come on to me and say, look, how do we protect our money? How do we protect our savings? And you start talking about Bitcoin. It's interesting. The minute you start talking about it, people are like, ah, that's stupid internet money. The majority yeah, but still, you've got that small percentage. They're like, okay, tell me more. I want to understand this. And <clears throat> slowly, I think it's all of our responsibility to, to share with people what this asset is and how it can protect portfolios, how it can preserve savings, how it can properly value your time. Um, and all of these, you know, fantastic attributes, um, that, uh, that people have missed, I think just because like you say, takes 10 minutes to explain it properly give me the elevator pitch okay well it's internet money okay right bored yeah um that's it so i think um i think it's really breaking down that wall is getting to the point of identifying the problem right and we've got a very big addressable problem right here and now 
and that is your money is being inflated away, right? And why not think about having at least some allocation to the hardest money that's ever been invented? What do you think that your average person's allocation to that should be? Or do you think it's a totally personal, you know, there's like Tamath who says 1% and there's people who say yeah. 5%. And I thought about this a lot. And I, I think it, dep- it actually depends on your asset base. Like if you're sort of not in a position where you've got a lot of investable capital, then probably you, you know, you, your allocation is going to end up a little bit larger. Let's say you've got $2,000. You probably want to put 25% of that yeah. into Bitcoin would be my recommendation. That said, if you're, you know, worth a hundred million dollars, um, I would probably say that the allocation is going to be a bit different. Um, somewhere between the one to one 10 to even, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, Okay, well, so if here's you've got an interesting question. You can burn ten, and it doesn't matter. So I mean, yeah, right. exactly. So here's an interesting question for you, Scott. So I give you Please. ten million dollars today. How are you allocating it? It's hard today um, because right? uh, you know if you had say, even if you had said a year ago, it would be a different answer. Or six months ago, mm. but um, I certainly wouldn't buy a lot of stock right now. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't buy a lot of stock. I'd, be... I'd buy some land. I'd buy some gold. Yeah. I'd buy a whole lot of Bitcoin. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I would buy a whole lot of uh, USDC and try to get like a 9 or 10% yield on one of these T5 platforms yeah, or something. But yeah, there it's, it's a really interesting question because that answer has changed. And that mm-hmm. goes back to so, what I was saying. Like we're in this last four or five months, there's this sort of grand awakening of how nonsensical all of this is. But I'm yeah. not going to buy Tesla. I would have bought te- a year ago. I would have said like, oh, I'll yeah. put a million dollars in Tesla. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like we, we've got to a point with investment where it's just like, yeah, what, what is a safe store for my money? And actually more and more Bitcoin becomes that answer. So it went from a one to 5% allocation to needs to be 20, 25. It's how it is for um, me. I was, I was yeah. never until six months ago, I preached so hard, like no more than 10% to people when they would yeah. talk to me and they would ask me, I would say, listen, like, you know, and then I break that down to what I'm, you know, the 15% I'm willing to trade with and, and whatever mm. it's ballooned because of the market and I'm just not reallocating. Yeah. Yeah. I feel right. I mean, what are you going to do? Put your, what are you going to put your yeah. dollars in a savings account and get point, you know, two, five percent. When when I, was a kid, you get like 12%. I know like that's what started me getting interested in finance. Like I'd take my money down to a bank. I'd get more money next month. So like, this is amazing. Um, now, you know, you've got a situation where, I mean, my family live in Switzerland. You've got negative interest rates. We get charged 75 basis points for sitting cash in an account. <laughs> so you cannot have cash. You just no. can't. So yeah, yeah, people keep, you keep hearing sort of this idea and I keep presenting it that it feels like now, like your savings account is Bitcoin and you're walking around mm-hmm. money is dollars. Go yeah. spend your dollars, <laughs> buy everything you need, but your savings account is, is Bitcoin. And the thing is, that's even true if the price drops, right? Because this isn't even about the price of Bitcoin. It's about having that idiosyncratic risk that just to know that it might mm-hmm. move differently than everything else if the world goes to complete shit. In my mm-hmm. opinion. Yeah. Yeah. No, look, I mean, uh, there's a, there's a good meme out there. One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. Yeah. And, um, 
yeah, look, every time the price goes down, it's just like, great, I can get more Bitcoin. You know, that's, that's where you end up. How much risk do you see of legitimate hyperinflation with the dollar? I mean, a, a Venezuela or a Lebanon or a, you know, Germany pre-World War II sort of, uh, you know, uh, piles of cash in a suitcase to buy bread situation. Do you think that that's possible with the U.S. dollar? I think uh, I think the, the dollar would be the last currency. Yeah, I mean, it's um, the reserve. Uh, the, yeah. yeah, so like you've got so much debt denominated in dollar. You've got so many obligations that need to be paid in dollars. Um, obviously, taxes, but but predominantly debt. Um, I think that always creates the demand for dollar. Um, you know, obviously, at some point, it becomes too much. Um, but I, you know, I mean, the Fed is is not stupid. Um, they know how to control things probably the best of any central bank globally. Um, and I think that they are obviously very concerned of make, about making sure they've got that balancing act, right? You've got Kashkari going on and saying there's infinite dollars and then, you know, that's the point he needed to say that so people stop panicking. And then I think, you know, they slowly start to walk that back. But... Yeah, it's look, also, I think any I mean, time that you get close to it. That's determined yeah, that you on demand. But, but, you know, the infinite dollars, it's, it's a great uh, talking point. But that's, you know, yeah. it means that they're willing to lend infinitely to a bank, which means that people need to really mm -hmm. want to borrow. And people, banks seem terrified to lend and people seem terrified to borrow to some degree. So, but yeah, yeah I, I don't think that we see that sort of like... Uh, Mad Max dystopian future scenario that would come with a hyper inflated dollar, but it's scary to hear them talking about walking back policy that they've had for decades, you know, about inflation. I, th I think the, the biggest risk is what's referred to often as, as helicopter money. The current QE is, yeah, look, it's controlled. Like you said, it's a lending based uh, printing effectively. Whereas helicopter money effectively, when you start just distributing money to everybody, that's where obviously dollars really start to lose their value because everybody's just like, Oh great. I've got all these dollars, you know, spend them. And like, hang on a minute. Do I want to give you that for the same amount of dollars anymore? Um, with that many more out there. And that's when you start getting to that point. I think when you talk about Germany and Weimar inflation, you know, obviously that was, it, it was interesting to read about what happened in that environment where people just sat there going, Oh, you know, uh, shopping's getting more expensive or housing's getting more expensive. And you're sitting there thinking everything's getting more expensive. It's like, no, your money's getting cheaper, right. more valueless. And I, I think that that's often the, the problematic realization. This is something I've been looking at since 2008, which, you know, first started getting me buying gold and, and these sort of store of value assets. Because I, you know, you watch things like holidays, school fees, everything getting so much ridiculously more expensive every year. They're like, CPI is just not representative of what is going on here, right? $10,000 today doesn't cover nearly as much as $10,000 did in 2008. We've already seen quite rampant inflation. Sure, they've managed to keep prices low of the core basket of, of CPI, but that's, a, that's an illusion. So, so how much similarity do you see? Because obviously you sort of came into this industry, you were there, but in 2008, you're talking about when you really got interested in, you know, uh, hard money hedges, gold, 
How much similarity do you see? How much of a repeat of the past are we seeing in 2020 from, from 2008? Did we learn anything? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we're far more out of control now in terms of printing than we ever were in so 2008. Crazy. But you think about that, right? It's a global financial crisis. We were say the U.S. was trying to save the biggest banks. And people went printed. nuts when they people went nuts when they tried to bail out banks, and this is so mm-hmm. much more egregious. And it's the same people mm-hmm. that went nuts who are supporting it this time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, look, it's it's a, of a, a factor of like ten of what we saw in the in the global financial crisis. So you know, it's it it just begs the question, you know, why why did we do this to our economy where there would have been such an easier way uh, to potentially deal with it. But that's a, that's a whole different conversation. That's a good one now. So, so how much do you think that, I mean, we're talking about the irresponsibility obviously of um, central banks and, mm-hmm. and their policy. They're coming to digital currency, right? I mean, we already see yeah. they're testing, I mean, they're chest testing the one, the, the digital Euro, um, we're seeing it all over, all over the world, mm-hmm. literally even the, the United States now has a task force under the fed to, to mm-hmm. test the digital dollar. So assuming paper money will be eradicated, which is just the natural evolution, I believe, you know, for, for superior money. How much do you think that central bank digital currencies will affect the cryptocurrency market? Cause they're different. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I, I think central bank digital currencies will only be good for cryptocurrencies. Because all you're doing is just tokenizing a fiat currency um, and, you know, using it within your infrastructure. I think then people get much more comfortable with that problem that we talked about before. How do you deal with it? How do you deal with your wallet, your custody, or et cetera? So the, the, the thing that this will propagate is really the adoption of knowledge around how to deal with this. And then I think more and more people will go, okay, what is that Bitcoin thing? And start to question it a lot more. Obviously, more and more people from a credible uh, point of view are taking an interest in Bitcoin. I think that is now really hitting the next snowball for the next phase of adoption. So I think central bank digital currency will just raise the education curve. So we won't have to go through that whole process of set out your wallet. This is how you do it. Deal right, with you'll have, everyone's going to have one. You'll, you'll just know how to transact exactly. digitally. Exactly. And it will become a, you know, a, a normal way of doing things. When I talk to my kids, I mean, my son's nearly 10, you know, the idea of Bitcoin for him is totally normal. I mean, he, he loves playing Fortnite. So, you know, y- using V-Bucks like, Daddy, can I get some more V-Bucks? And, you know, then we end up in a nice debate about what V-Bucks are, et cetera. But um, the point is that he's got used to transacting in this way. And I think this will just, as I say, speed up the adoption curve for everybody else um, rather than just that younger generation. I think there are very concerning things about central bank digital currencies, obviously. Privacy, I mean. Privacy, control, right? It's like you look at, you know, uh, what China did when they, you know, if someone's being antisocial, you're not allowed to travel for six months. They cut you off from public transport. You know, what does that mean when they control all money? Um, It's like, how do they punish you then? Um, And it's not just going to be China. It's like, you know, anyone that has control of money and, you know, ends up going down this sort of route. So I think uh, it's, uh, it's very concerning. And then when you talk about, you know, Switzerland having negative interest rates, well, then 
You don't need a bank account and they can tax you with negative interest rates in any wallet you hold cash in. Just take it right out. Yeah. The idea of like saying, you know what, I'm tired of paying 75 basis points. I'm going to store a load of cash in my wardrobe. No chance. You can't do that anymore. There was actually an IMF paper. I think it was about a year and a half ago talking about how with the advent of digital currencies, they will be able to implement negative rates on a much broader uh, swathe of people. Makes sense. I mean, it's there in plain sight, right? This never, is, I've, this is, is the strategy. A, the one argument I've never heard. I actually never have even considered that, which is strange because I've had this conversation probably 20 yeah. times. But that's true. You, you want your taxes, you want your basis points, just take it right out of your digital yeah. wallet. You can't hide it. There's no cash. Yeah. I'm sure they'll find creative ways for people to mix and hide their uh, digital currencies <laughs> at some yeah. point. But uh, oh, Bitcoin will be one, right? So do you, you know, we hear this kind of idea that uh, Bitcoin is uh, digital gold correlated to metals and stuff. I always sort of mm-hmm. make, the, make the argument that it's actually more of an inverse correlation to the dollar. Like, mm-hmm. and that, you know, we're seeing more like dollar weakness equals Bitcoin strength. Um, I wonder if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think what's interesting about Bitcoin is obviously you have this finite resource, so this finite amount of something that everybody is starting to attribute value to. So, you know, obviously scarcity is only interesting when it's something scarce that people want. And, and so now we're getting to that point where you've got that scarcity level. I think obviously to your point, when we talk about the devaluation of dollar, then, you know, you're going to a store of value and that is a natural uh, space to go and store your money. But I think there's another element of it that Satoshi sort of gamed into the whole thing. And that's the, the game theory of, of the price of Bitcoin actually going up and so, and starting to create that, that FOMO element where, you know, someone like yourself, you've been sitting there accumulating Bitcoin over the last two, three years you're kind of relaxed. It's going up gently, gently. When it starts ripping, you're going to be like, hang on a minute. I don't have enough Bitcoin. And then that, that becomes such a driver for people like you and obviously the new, new adopters. Like, oh my God, you know, I've got to chase this. And so you have that number go up, uh, kind of game theory element to it. Stocks only go up, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But obviously that leads to peaks and troughs, but it's an important part of the adoption cycle. So I think yes to your question later in a more mature uh, Bitcoin, we will start to see that decorrelation from the dollar um, and it will behave very similarly to gold. But right now we're just at a massive adoption curve. So you get those sort of massive peaks and troughs as that number go up theory really starts to play out. Um, it is really interesting. I mean, it's a, we experienced yeah. it in 2017, right? And now yeah. it's like, we're doing it without that retail FOMO and we're still at those same prices, you know, like yeah. three years, three years later, we're sitting at 11,000 Bitcoin has not spent much time above 11,000. That all happened in like mm-hmm. a month or two. So it's really yeah. encouraging to see that you're not, you know, the guy who cuts your hair isn't telling you to buy Bitcoin right now. Yeah. You know, so clearly there's something, this is it. Yeah, I know there's no more dangerous words than this time. It's different, but this time it actually mm-hmm. does somewhat feel different. Yeah, it feels a little different. I think, you know, like, like we kind of touched on, you've got people that are um, 
savvy around investing their capital, that are looking at what's happening with the Fed, with central banks across the world, not just the Fed, and saying, okay, I need stores of value. And they're looking at gold. And then they're obviously seeing, you know, people like Paul Tudor Jones turning around and going, actually, Bitcoin is the best store of value. And I think that is just so important. And then you've got obviously the micro strategy approach yeah, with, I mean, with the corporate treasury. It's huge. Absolutely it's huge. So I think uh, actually uh, we are looking at the beginning of a new adoption cycle. It might not be your hairdresser at this point in time, but it's certainly every, every person in finance is, who has some sort of basic understanding of what's going on in M2 supply is saying, hang on a minute, I need to look at this properly. Right, but it's so small. I mean, the big money still to some degree can't enter, right? I mean, it's just like the market cap's not high enough, the price isn't high enough, there's mm -hmm. just not enough mm -hmm. there, right? There's not enough meat on the bone for them to even come in. So if we get that start, sort of rise, shouldn't we see it go absolutely parabolic when it's actually big enough for the huge money to come in? Yeah, look, I think, I think absolutely. Um, there, were, there were a series of charts or one particular chart during the round talking about time to the next bull rally post a halving and expanding out. And, and someone was making the case that if, you know, because you need more money to send it higher, those curves are going to get more and more uh, distance. And I'm like, well, actually, I don't, I don't think that's right. Because what you're seeing is much bigger money, to your point, starting to enter the space. And so the amount of money coming in actually will at least pull that, that uh, curve to a much more normalized curve. Obviously, the first two halvings um, were, were kind of... So early. You know, so early that the, the price could move on, on, on very little. Now, obviously, we're getting to a point of adoption with those curves that I think you're going to see much more of a normalization of the curves. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, to your point, big, big money needs the market cap to be bigger, and then that is self-perpetuating. What's so interesting, you just kind of talked about it, but you know, the, the first two halvings and every event that's ever happened in Bitcoin in the past, like mm. the existence of the word or idea of backed would like move price massively, right? Any news <laughs> yeah. in this space would move price. And now it's like news that's much bigger than any of those stories were two or three years ago. It doesn't even like land at all, right? I mean, because we yeah. see it every single day. OCC says the United States can, you know, banks can, can custody Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. In the same week, PayPal and Venmo are coming. In the same week, Square and Cash App are doing the bulk of their business. Mm. It doesn't even move price anymore. So, like, yeah, now no, it's, it's, it's we're, we're, we're there. We're, I mean, yeah, <laughs> this time it's different. Exactly. No, I think we're now at a point where that big money is, is sitting there on the sideline. You, you're not forced into a trade if it's not moving. So once we start to see that movement, then it forces people. Hang on a minute. We've been talking about treasure, uh, having a portion of our treasury to Bitcoin ever since the MicroStrategy news. Now it's moving. We need to act. And that will start to really push things. So I think uh, it's just a matter of time. Are there other coins that you're personally interested? Are you in or are you a Bitcoin Max, I hate to use the term maximus, but like, is Bitcoin yeah. for you? You think that's our one shot or, or are you, you know, no, exposed like, or interested in all coins? Yeah, I'm very interested in all coins. I think that, you know, Bitcoin has a particular usage and for that Bitcoin will always win. 
right? It's like, it's that store of values, the digital gold. No, no one, I believe at this point is taking that off Bitcoin. Um, uh, I'm what I think I would refer to as a Bitcoin centrist. I very strongly believe in Bitcoin, right. but I also believe that the, uh, the other protocols have a lot to offer. I mean, obviously we have an investment bank that is positioned to obviously really grow the digital security industry. And I think that's an entirely different use case. I think, you know, Ethereum uh, is obviously extremely interesting, has already proved out um, a number of times that it is, it has a use case. It is a viable protocol. And then you've got others like Polkadot uh, coming along very recently. Um, I think this is extremely interesting. Um, and, you know, again, when we come back to what we do at, at, at Diginex and particularly around the exchange Equos, you know, we want to provide a, a sort of a standard of governance around listing of tokens that, again, is differentiated, that protects investors, that you know, oh, it's listed on Equos. I know that that's not a scam, right? right? So you actually have a level of due diligence. So we're going to be uh, having quite a thorough process around listing um, of what we list on the exchange. And obviously that will be combined with what we see as being viable use cases, be it a smart contract delivery platform or a particular interesting utility. But I think that there is a lot of value in this ecosystem. This technology is yet to be properly proved out other than what's happening in Bitcoin. And I think that's why you get these Bitcoin maximists. They're like, well, the only true working version of blockchain is Bitcoin. And yeah, there's a, a strong argument to that, but there's certainly no reason not to explore the innovation that's being uh, achieved with, with something like Ethereum. And obviously we talked about DeFi earlier, you know, there are some really interesting things happening in this space and forgetting sushi swaps and hot dogs for, for the yeah, moment. I mean, urine, but, like, urine is cool. Some of them are yeah. really cool. I mean, the, the, yeah. the UK, I mean, the, you know, and that is, those things are very bullish for Ethereum in general, sort of, as you said, I mean, Hey, now you can stake it. So you're reducing the supply and getting yield, mm -hmm. but where that yield comes from, I guess could be a mystery. <laughs> so we'll see. But then, but there are, I mean, Ethereum also is struggling with this new boom. I mean, I don't know if you've uh, participated at all or experienced any of the gas fees or the uh, slow transaction times, but it's, becoming a bit absurd <laughs> yeah we're uh, we're having to top up our gas fees on the exchange quite regularly yeah yeah i mean it's 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 pretty crazy but i think there are so many interesting projects and i think you nailed it which is that you know bitcoin is what it is and that's untouchable but there's so mm. much more you know interesting technology and use cases for blockchain and th that can be tokenized yeah. that it'd be kind of I just don't see the reason to be married to one or be a, a hardcore community member and not look at yeah. the other, you know, projects because there's so, so many and so many of them yeah. are going to make, even if you don't care, they're going to make people so much money. Yeah. Look, I mean, uh, you, you think about the talent that's in this industry now, Crazy. like, so yeah, some, some of the greatest minds in tech and finance are moving into this space. I mean, I had a pretty big checkbook to hire people at Nomura. I couldn't hire anywhere near the level of talent that I've hired into Diginex because people want to be in this industry. They want to be a part of it. And yeah, we've got some exceptional people in the organization, but it's not just us. I mean, this industry is populated with some very talented, very smart people. 
And what I always say is when you put smart people on a problem, they're going to work out a really great solution, an innovative solution. It just feels like we're at the beginning of an entirely new boom in finance. And yeah, it's just the possibility is, is huge. So shutting yourself off and just saying it's Bitcoin only, I think that's kind of a limiting, a limiting mindset. I legitimately can't sleep at night anymore because it's become so exciting. <laughs> it's, it, I really, I mean, I, I have trouble. Like it's get, it just feels like it's at this crazy inflection point. So, yeah. So, so I, agree. you know, I know we're getting kind of up against it here. So I guess, can you give me the top line? What does the future look like for you guys? You know, six months out, a year out, five mm-hmm. years out, what should we be looking at from, for, for from, from Diginex and, and what, what can we be excited about? Yeah, look, I think it's really about that expansion of offering around the derivative product and making sure that people have options, not just options, literally, but options to <laughs> manage their portfolio, right? And um, then really paving the way for this future that we see that disrupts investment banking entirely around digital securities and be those smart contracts listed on Ethereum or Polkadot or whatever the the smart contract protocol may, may be. Um, I think it's, uh, it's just obviously, as you say, it's an extremely exciting time. We're getting closer. Um, and I think the advent of digital securities will be transformative for the investment world. Um, it's very, very exciting. Love it. So where can everybody uh, keep up with you after this uh, follow Diginex, you know, and, and make sure that they, they know what's, what's coming next? Sure. So we have the group level uh, Twitter account is uh, is at Diginex Global, uh, all one word. Um, we have the exchange account at Equos underscore IO, and you can follow me as well on Twitter. I'm at Richard Byworth, all one word, um, B Y W O R T H. So yeah, that's that's everything. We're on LinkedIn as well, um, but uh, obviously that's sort of tilting towards the more traditional space. And you got me pumped. I, <laughs> I just like, I, I, I honestly, I feel like this is the best job in the world. You might have the best job in the world, but um, you know, that, that like getting to talk to people because it just, this is why I won't sleep tonight, right? Because I'm just going to be excited and my wheels are going to be spinning and I'll be thinking about uh, what, what we yeah. can do tomorrow. But uh, I really do appreciate it. Thank you uh, so much for your time. And uh, I'm just, just really excited, man. Very inspiring. So thank you very much. Great. Thank you, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great chat. Very enjoyable. A lot of ground covered. Thank you. Yeah, we we, we really went there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we did.